Hello and welcome everybody to another Forward Together podcast. My name is Jared Dean. Um, I work for Hollywell Trust. We produce this podcast. And as always, along with me today is Paul Gosling. Paul, how's the form? It's great. Thank you, Jared. So, Paul, we're continuing the conversations with political leaders. Uh, do you want to tell us who we have for this episode? Yes, we have Michelle O'Neill, who is the Deputy First Minister, well, in fact, effectively Joint First Minister, except for the titles, uh, and also uh, Vice President of Sinn Féin. So it's very good indeed that uh, we had Michelle agreeing to be interviewed. It's something that we've been pursuing for a number of weeks. Uh, she obviously has a very busy diary, but mm. thanks very much to Michelle for giving us the time. Yeah, we're delighted to have her along. And it was a really interesting conversation as well, Paul. I, I think the first thing that struck me or the, one of the first things that Michelle talks about is trust within or between people, particularly within the political parties, and that we've a lot to do to build the trust again, particularly after the recent hiatus. Absolutely. And uh, it's one of the themes of these three series of podcasts that we've been doing, Gerard, and the book as well, about the fact that we have to have trust between the parties and between the ministers if we're going to make progress in Northern Ireland and to deal with the issues. And legacy is one of those key words that we can't avoid. But in a sense, the point which we are discussing today, I think, is that legacy comes in two forms. One, you've got the conversations about the criminality within the troubles, the, uh, the deaths, uh, how you deal with the events, um, and whether you should have prosecutions and also investigations and inquests. But there's a second element to the legacy, and that is the legacy of distrust between the political parties and the political players. And how do you deal with a, a, a legacy that is of hatred uh, between some people that have got long histories, long memories, and how do you overcome that? Because you have people that have been deeply mentally scarred by the events of the Troubles. You've got people that remain physically injured as a result of the Troubles. It's very difficult to forgive. You don't necessarily want to forget, but that actually seems to be what the British government's approach is to try and forget the past rather than deal with it. So a lot of what Michelle and I are talking about is how you deal with that type of legacy rather than just this issue about whether we're talking about prosecutions and investigations. Yeah, and when she talks about reconciliation, that becomes really clear. And I really like the way that she put it. She said, this isn't about just reconciling the past. It touches on the building of the trust. It's about the past, but it's also about today and tomorrow as well. Um, and she does talk about the Stormont House Agreement as a way of addressing the legacy and maybe building that trust, but feels as though that's been undermined by the British government, as you say. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the Stormont House Agreement seems to have gone into history along with much of the else that's been agreed in the past. Um, I think that the, the positive thing that Michelle is saying is that we have a mechanism in a way for dealing with building trust, and that is working together within the institutions, and that the impact of the COVID pandemic has been to at least on some levels improve trust between different people. But of course, you know, we've got a new relationship between First Minister and Deputy First Minister. Uh, we don't know how long the First Minister will continue to be in place, whether he'll be replaced by the new leader of the DUP. So there's a lot of questions about those relationships at the heart of government. Yeah, and 
you touched on apologies. Apology is a, a, a common theme that has come up again and again. And people particularly looking for apology, not just from government players, but also from, if you like, all other actors who were on the field as well. And Michelle talks about this too. Yes, uh, she doesn't really answer the question about whether Republicans should apologise for past events, but she, I think, does make the point that there's a limited value in an apology by one leader when other leaders can effectively disavow that, uh, by which I mean we talk specifically about the fact that David Cameron has apologised for Bloody Sunday, but actually it was Ted Heath who was the Prime Minister at the time and probably has responsibility on some levels for what happened at Bloody Sunday. Um, but equally, the behaviour of Boris Johnson, the comments of Boris Johnson indicates that he doesn't stand over this approach of apologising for past actions of the British state. Indeed, a lot of people would say that the ending of investigations into events and the troubles is a way of avoiding accepting responsibility or making apologies for state behavior, including collusion in illegal activities during the troubles. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're not going to get where some people would want us to be in terms of apologies, I think. Uh, well, look, let's hear the full conversation of Michelle now. What I wanted to start with, Michelle, was to ask you around legacy, not just around the Secretary of State's proposals on how we deal with past events, but actually the, the broader political context of how we deal with the legacy of distrust. I mean, these things obviously come in together. How, how do we make progress in order to, to build trust and deal with not only the, the legacy around the Troubles events, but also the legacy of that distrust? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I think there's a lot to be done in terms of trying to build trust, particularly after relationships have been so fractured over many years for a whole lot of reasons, but particularly of, of recent times where we had hiatus in the, in the Assembly and Executive for three years. We were only back in the door, only starting to work together, and then the pandemic has hit. Although I think the pandemic is a good demonstration of how when we work together, we can do good things. Um, that This has been one of the most you know challenging times, I think, for us all. And we perhaps come at things from all different perspectives, different times. However, I do think it has shown that when there's a willingness to work together, we can do that. I think you can't divorce um, the historic, the legacy issues, you know, the conflict, the impact of conflict. I don't think you can divorce that from even from today's relations. And that's why it's really, really important that if we're going to be able to create trust, that we do so in a way that's actually dealing with the past, that actually implements legacy agreements that have been made the Stormont House Agreement, for example, that was made seven years ago. And here we are with a distinct lack of trust from all those that have been impacted uh, because the British government have reneged on their commitment. I mean, that was a that in itself was a compromise. It was where everybody gave a bit. It was where not everybody agreed that this was the idea. However, what it did do was that give families choice. And I think that's really, really important because, as we know, um, not all families want the same thing. Even within families, not all individuals want the same thing. But I do think that um, if we're going to successfully deal with the past and not burden today's generation with that, then we need to actually, you know, adequately deal with it. And I think the Stormont House Agreement gave us the best chance to do so. But I think the, the British government's unilateral actions of recent weeks has demonstrated that, um, that they'll do anything to cover up uh, their role and what they did here in terms of the, the conflict. And also, I think that then that damages trust beyond, um, you know, beyond um, any prospect of being able to command any kind of confidence. So 
I think the fact that the British government are uh, bringing forward these proposals for amnesty, but also to interfere with due legal process, sure, where does that leave many, many people? Um, so I think that the, the the attempt or the approach of the British government is actually damaging and hampering any potential for, you know, even the new generation of political leaders to be able to build sort of better relationships because we continue to have to deal with this. And But more important to me, I think, in all this is that the the their actions have kind of deepened the mistrust and then forcing people to take sides. But more important, I think, is the families and all of this that they have been left um, again, once again, you know, having campaigned in some cases for up to five decades and been left now in a just in a in a horrible position actually in a in a in a such a divisive um way the British government have deepened all the mist- the level of mistrust that was already there. I think. I, my perception would be that less uh, the issues of prosecutions is less significant than the the issue over investigations and inquests, and that the fact that the Bally Murphy families wouldn't have had satisfaction if these imp- uh, proposals had been implemented. I mean, is is that how you see it as well? I mean, I mean, as I said, I think different things are important to different people. So we had a way in which to, to um, provide an option for everybody, provide that choice. Um, including the justice option because obviously the historical um, investigations unit was an option for, for families as well. But yeah, I mean, to shut down, because it isn't just about amnesty now, it is about shutting down every avenue that was open to families. So, um, and, and to interfere with the legal process. Where in the world would that be acceptable? You know, I just think it's incredible that this is the, the direction of, of the British government in this moment in time. So how do, how do we make progress? How do we move forward? I mean, one of the things that's noticeable is that David Cameron made the apology over Bloody Sunday. Johnson seems to be very resistant to making similar apologies. But I mean, one of the things that, uh, that someone from a loyalist background has said to me is that to build trust for the future, it's really important that organisations admit their responsibility for past events. And just as the British state needs to admit responsibility so that people associated with Republicans, Republicanism need to make a, a apologies so that people, for example, from loyalist backgrounds can be reassured that events could never recur. And what do you what role do you see for for apologies? I think I suppose the first thing I would say is that I think that we need a new conversation about the past, also about the present and indeed about the future. And reconciliation sometimes is seen as one dimension and it's not it's also about resolving the past but it's also about the present and it's about how we're living today how we're living side by side how we're respecting each other how we understand each other there's all different narratives of the past and i think the first step to reconciliation is understanding that there'll never be a meeting of minds however we can understand where each other is coming from and i think it's really really important to say that all sides have inflicted hurt suffering and loss um wrongs have been done that can't be undone you know that can't be ignored or you know, wished away. And I think that's really, really important that we acknowledge that all victims deserve acknowledgement um, as a key step forward in terms of reconciliation and of healing. So I think that, you know, when, when you reflect on the on the David Cameron apology, it's it's clear that whenever you're dealing with, with the past that there is acknowledgement of the wrongdoing, but I think it's the actions that flow from that that are important. So the, the, the approach of the British government over recent weeks in removing any prospect of, of prosecution um, I think just demonstrates that, you know, whilst on one hand, the, the apology was, was hugely significant at, at that time, um, the follow through has not. And I think that's, you know, the, that, that shows 
that's a demonstration as to whether or not the apology was meaningful or not. And in this scenario, they, they haven't followed through. And I suppose the reality is that David Cameron's apology was probably heartfelt from him, but it doesn't necessarily reflect what Boris Johnson feels and certainly doesn't reflect the responsibilities that Edward Heath has to bear for events at that time. And then that raises the question about whether a leader can genuinely apologise for a broader part of society. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, deeds are important. And um, I think that successive Tory governments have demonstrated that this is that their intent um, and their priority above all else, above all people suffering, above the grief of families, above the peace process of relationships here is to is to protect what basically their role in the conflict is to protect their dirty war in Ireland and this is not for me just about um serving you know British soldiers this is about going right to the highest echelons of the political um, apparatus in, in Westminster and in, um, in Whitehall and I think that um that they have demonstrated that they're prepared to go to any length to cover up state policy which of collusion of shoot to kill it's those who directed these people to come onto the streets and to kill our citizens, and that's uh, what we're seeing. The, the British government um, will stop at no lengths to protect uh, what they did here. Now, this is dealing with the past. Now, the biggest question in a sense is how we deal with the future. I mean, what, what's your position in terms of institutional reform? I mean, how committed are you to the Bengal proposals and to the reform of uh, schooling so that we have a more integrated society moving forward? Uh, well, I was the minister responsible for working with Rafael Bangoa and had the privilege to, to uh, work closely with him when he brought forward the, the transformation plan, which I very much endorsed and actually received cross-party support for. Um, unfortunately, uh, we then had the, the RHI scandal, the institutions collapsed, and then dealing with COVID. So the reforms that you'd want, you'd expect at this stage to be implemented haven't been implemented. However, I have to say that we need to reform our health system. There's no doubt about that. That's absolutely essential. I think COVID has shone a light on on all the cracks within the health system. It was very clear to me as a health minister back in 2016 that whenever I went in, the things that struck me most was that we didn't have a workforce plan, um, you know, that uh, we were not looking at, uh, or, or we need to explore more how we can work together across the island in terms of um, bringing in uh, more all-island services because there are things that, that we could do far more efficiently together. Um, so... We need to see the reforms and they need to be implemented as a priority. The challenge in the health service is always going to be how do you maintain a service at the same time as transforming a service and also to bring the public with you around what the transformation means. And Because what we need to get to the point in time is where we're talking about our outcomes from that. So how do we live longer um, because of the services that we receive? Um, and I think that's going to be a big debate to be had in, in the time ahead. And are you reasonably relaxed about the idea of closing some buildings where we can actually achieve more efficient services across the health service by integrating things on a more regional basis? So that's why I think we need to flip the conversation. The conversations should be about how do I get the best healthcare, uh, and then have the conversation about where we where we um, achieve it. There's no doubt that we need to invest more in primary care so people should have services closer to them. Um, but there's a way for us to do that. We need to upfront invest in community services, so the multidisciplinary teams, and if you, you know, if you need to see your GP, a physio, a, a, um, an OT, all those things, if they're based in a, in a sort of multidisciplinary team approach closer to people in communities, then they're less reliant to need to travel to hospitals, for example, for other services. So 
sometimes I think whenever we talk about um, service reconfiguration, so change in how we deliver care, it needs to not be focused on the buildings. It needs to be focused on how do we get people better care. And that's why I think we need to do this with the public and the public understand exactly why uh, things are changing and that it's going to be a better thing for them. So it's a sensitive debate, of course. Um, and we know there's been, particularly in rural areas, it's very difficult for people sometimes to access services. So let's pr- try to bring a service, a primary care service directly to people in their communities. And I think that will change the debate completely. Now, you've mentioned about improving All-Ireland Corporation. What services would you like to see provided on a cross-border basis that aren't currently being provided? I think there's so much potential there. We've seen with cancer care in the Northwest. We've seen with um, children's cardiac care in between Belfast and Dublin. There are so many things. And there's actually an awful lot of things that happen under the radar that aren't really talked about publicly. There's ENT services that are shared. Um, But I think that, again, there isn't... When it comes to service reconfiguration, when we're looking at how we deliver care, we should be doing that on an all-island basis. So I would like to see us as joined up as we can by providing particularly specialist care. Because, for example, there are, um, when it comes to eating disorders um, and people accessing services, there aren't any on the island. So, you know, people are having to travel to England and that's where for treatment. Is that good enough? No. Um, can we do more here? Yeah, yes. So I would like to see us focusing on uh, where are we, why are we not having... Why, why can't we or don't we have certain services on the island? Let's make sure that we work together to deliver those. But then let's just enhance the all-island population. This just makes common sense. There's no, you know, you don't have to dress it up. It just makes common sense for a small island, a small population, people living back to back. So many people live along that border um, border as well. And I think that the, the, the savings to be got both economically, but also the benefits to be got for the public, um, I think are... are are there to be seen for all. So I'd like to see us doing an awful lot more there. And how far are you willing to go in terms of educational reform? I mean, there's been quite a big debate in the last few days about uh, the comments around John Adele uh, in terms of integrated education. I mean, clearly the, uh, the integrated system isn't perfect, uh, but we do need to bring together the populations at school age. So what's, what's Sinn Féin's position on integrated education and bringing the populations together as children? Yeah, well, I mean, I certainly think integrated education certainly has a role to play in terms of um, our education system and, and also in, in bringing forward um, reform, which is clearly needed. I mean, I think it's really, really important always when we have this debate to, to put um, our education, our current education system in context. It's a product of a society that was based on division, um, that was based on exclusion and inequality. Um, and one which rejected diversity and one which also only recognised one identity. So therefore, that is why we have the system of education that we have today. For my part, what I would like to see is a, an education system that's based on diversity and respect, that's based on an understanding between different cultures and religious um, beliefs, and also none. And I think that um, we have a huge opportunity now with, you'd probably be aware that in the NDNA, the New Decade New Approach political agreement, there was a, a commitment to... Um, to re-look at our education system. So let's take the opportunity to reimagine it um, and to shape it into today's modern society. And I think one that you know helps to build you know a, a system that, that young people can 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 flourish in, um, that we kind of break away the, the the division of the past. Um, and I think it's about how do you build a system that actually allows us to understand that um, more about what we have in common celebrate our diversity you know so what would that look like so what would that look like michelle i mean you say reimagining the future for schooling and what would that actually look like 
But I think you have to go to the table with an open mind on that. I mean, I think if you have principles, then you can build the system around it. But the principles should be that we create a diverse education system, one that's got respect and understanding between different cultures and religious beliefs and none, as I said. But I think that then let's go to the table um, and have that conversation. But this was something that was committed to under New Decade, New Approach, but because of COVID, hasn't happened. But I'd say it's it's a... It's nearly like an area for a citizens' assembly type approach. You know, yeah, I was going to ask that. I mean, do you think that is the solution to have a citizens' assembly to to look at the future of schooling? Yeah, well, because I think that that's about um, you know that's very much participatory democracy. That's people coming together from all walks and having their view. And so, so yes, why not? But why not have this conversation as part of that? I certainly would be would be willing to engage in all of that, and and I bring my views and perspectives. Others will bring theirs. And, but I think that's the beauty of a citizens' assembly, isn't it? That you can see how people, particularly in the south of Ireland, when we went through the the major um, constitutional changes, that whether it was repeal um, or uh, marriage equality, people had a went in with one view and came out the other side informed, educated, and perhaps in some um, scenarios had a different viewpoint. I think that's a really positive thing, and none of us have anything to fear from entering that kind of conversation. And do you think that citizens' assemblies could also play a role in terms of enabling uh, support across the population for the Bangara reforms in in health? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that's important because I do think that when I, when I talk about changing the changing the, the 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 focus, the focus needs to be on how we live longer. So I, I would love to have a conversation with people around how we do that. So you know, some of the, I remember in my short time in the health department looking at um, people's outcomes. So if you lived in a more affluent area, and I think the example of that time was if you lived in an area of West Belfast um, and the the direct uh, change if you lived in the Malone Road, for example, and there was something like a difference of eight years of life expectancy. So how do we change that? That's the kind of conversation that I would like us to have. And obviously Sinn Féin is keen for Citizens' Assembly uh, in the South about preparing for... Irish unity. Are there other areas where you want to see citizens' assemblies or are interested in doing so? I just think they're a really positive way to develop policy um, and it's very much engaging. It's not the government telling people. It's it's about, you know, that participatory democracy. It's about people coming together, those with sectoral interests, those that are just interested in and government all coming together. So I think it's a very it's a very structured but very much valued way in which to, to um develop policy and thinking so um i would certainly be i'd be very keen to that but again i think it was the new decade new approach um commitment was to, to look at one to two issues to be commissioned per year um and again COVID has been the disruptor in, in the middle of that but there are so many things that we could discuss education being a, a huge one um gender uh, climate you know there's so many things that we could sit down and, and discuss um together i certainly would be open-minded to that but if we could get to the point where we had one to two of these key issues being discussed every year um that i think would be a, a very very positive thing for society and, and what would be the first one you'd want to see i think education's a really really good good place to start i mean i think given that we're going to have the um the major review then why not instead of it just being a government exercise in, in education the department of education taking it forward why not do it as a citizens assembly you know that my priority um, in terms of a, of a convention and, and um, a citizens' convention is we've called an Irish government to convene one about constitutional change. I certainly would like us to, to start that debate sooner rather than later. I think now is the time to have the conversation about what could be better for us all 
all of us who live this, in this island, not just those of it, who um, have an Irish identity, but those with a British identity and those with other identities. I think that that could be a very powerful um, conversation in the, in the years ahead. Presumably, the, the, the citizens' assemblies in the South, on, uh, in particular, on abortion, must have been uncomfortable within Sinn Féin because there'll be members who have strong Catholic faith. I mean, how, how difficult was that for you as, as a party leader to deal with? Well, I mean, we didn't cop out. I mean, a lot of political parties give members free votes. We didn't do that because we believe that um, if we set party policy, then that's where we should be um, and we should be united on it. We also can have a respectful debate, which we did, and people did have um, very strong views. Um, but I'm very proud, actually, of the way in which the party conducted the debate. We had it um, over the course of our Ardesh, which is our party conference. We discussed it. Um, people were invited to bring their own viewpoint, and respectfully so, and there were very different views, but the party membership then voted. That becomes party policy. But I think that the party is no different than wider society, so I think that um, when it comes to major changes in policy or, or positioning, then you have to bring people on a journey, and the party was exactly the same as the what the, the Citizens' Assembly did. People came with their view, and then um, were based on the information that they heard and the debate that they had, then they were able to... Um, you know, so in some cases, change their mind, and that's that's a positive thing. And would you like to extend those principles to other elements of democratic discussion around participatory budgetary budgeting, for example? Yes, and and one of the things that um, our team have brought forward is a you know a gender gender equality budgeting, and you know bringing trying to bring in changes to departments, how they allocate funding, all those things are important. So yes, let's let's move forward with these changes. Thank you very much, Michelle. I know you've got another commitment at uh, 10 o'clock. So thank you very much indeed for making the time and uh, Thanks, much appreciated. Right. I will be out on, on Friday. And you. Thank you. Thanks, Michelle. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks. Okay, Paul, um, as mentioned at the start, that was a, a really interesting conversation. To, to pick up on, a, on another couple of themes then, um, public reforms, it, it's what we've been asking each of the political leaders. Um Michelle's really strong, particularly when it comes to health reform. Um, as she was the, the health minister, I think it was involved in the, the Bengoa the Bengoa work. So no surprise that she she's all for public reform. And clearly this is a, a former minister that was on top of her brief as health minister. I, I, I found that quite impressive in terms of her awareness of the detail of the reform proposals from Bengoa, which is, I suppose, what you'd expect. Uh, but clearly, you know, it is a difficult issue because if you're going to carry out the Bengoa reforms, you're going to either close or repurpose a number of all, uh, buildings that are part of the NHS estate in Northern Ireland. You're necess- not necessarily going to have the same number of uh, accident and emergency facilities. You're going to actually focus on improving the service quality rather than maintaining the buildings. And it is politically contentious, uh, and we haven't got agreement still. Uh, in the last few days, the executive has discussed in principle how to deal with the waiting lists and waiting times, but it doesn't look as if they've got a detailed plan for how to achieve that or how to implement the big proposals. Yeah, and that's a real, it's one of the huge challenges that's facing us. Um, but Michelle thinks one of the ways we might deal with some of these challenges is to take the advantage of the size, the size of the island, the population of the whole island, and maybe look to deliver cross-border services, especially where there's specialist services involved. Yes, and, and again, I was impressed by the point that Michelle was making that there are 
actually more cross-border border services and corporation than, than we might be aware of. You know, we always talk about the children's heart surgery in Dublin and the cancer care in the Northwest at McGelvin. But, you know, there are other areas of partnership. Uh, and of course, you know, one of the one of the sad things about the podcast we've been doing, Gerard, is that we did speak with Jim Dornan in the past. Um, mm. And Jim was a very generous individual to us. And Jim has now sadly died because of uh, contracting COVID. But Jim was very keen indeed on developing the All-Ireland Health Service. And um, I think that's something that we need to keep refer referring to and focusing on. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Michelle also touches on participatory democracy, if you like, and citizens' assemblies, and seems to be strongly in favour of a allowing people to address challenging issues through the citizens assembly approach having learned from them the the efforts that were in the republic absolutely and and clearly of course you know Sinn Féin is majoring on the issue of the need for citizens assembly or the desire for citizens assembly to deal with the call for Irish unity uh, I did think it was interesting though that uh, Sinn Féin have got a quite centralized approach to the citizens assemblies of the past and when she spoke about the fact that the party determined its position um, and its approach to the citizens' assemblies on abortion, rather than necessarily allowing party members to participate without having a party line. I thought that was significant. But what I thought was very positive was Michelle's openness to having a citizens' assembly to consider the future of the education system. Mm. I think we all have recognised the need for it to be uh, reformed very substantially Clearly, there are difficulties. There are difficulties, not only from the point of view of unions who are very wedded to the the existing uh, state structure, but also for people from a Catholic background, uh, some of whom want to see Irish language to focus, others of whom want to see the Catholic um, religious teachings in school. I mean, there are a lot of tensions uh, around this, and uh, it would be interesting to see what a citizens' assembly on the future of education came up with. Yeah, I, I find it really interesting that she said, "Look, we have the education system that's a result of a divided society, and that's the reality, and that's what we have to change." And that's what a lot of people have been telling us for a long time through these podcasts as well. Absolutely, and and you know clearly. It's good to hear a senior politician talk positively about the role of citizens' assemblies. Yeah, brilliant. So, Paul, thank you for taking the time to have a conversation with Michelle. And of course, thanks to Michelle for taking the time as well. It was a really informative conversation and I think a good insight into some of the, the, the thinking there. Um, so thanks for listening, everybody. Don't forget to subscribe and comment and like and share and all that type of stuff that we do with these podcasts thanks to our funders the community relations council for northern ireland and to michael barways for helping to pull this together okay and we'll talk to you all again soon